First Timothy chapter 3. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectful, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women, worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. This is the word of God. Thanks very much, Mark. Um, I want you to imagine that you've just discovered that two church leaders have been dismissed. It turns out that they've rejected the Bible's teaching. So can you imagine what the coffee time after the church service would be like? What do you think about that? Who's going to replace them? What sort of leaders do you think we need? What sort of damage do you think has been done by this? How can we stop it happening again? Well, that was probably something like what was going on in Ephesus. Uh, we heard in chapter 1 um, that Hymenaeus and Alexander, two church leaders in the congregation there, have been dismissed from their jobs because they've turned away from the faith. Uh, and later on in the letter, Paul is going to tell Timothy that Timothy needs to rebuke elders who are sinning uh, in front of everyone else, in front of the whole congregation. And the congregation are going to be told that they need to honor good leaders, ones who are doing a good job. So everyone is going to have a part to play in this job of uh, thinking about how to transform the leadership in Ephesus. And so their questions would have been something like, what makes a good leader in the Church of Christ? How are we going to do that? How can we improve our leadership? No doubt, as well as those kind of questions, some people were saying, well, hang on, why are we bothering with all this stuff about leaders? Uh, isn't it just politics? Isn't it just kind of administration? Isn't it all a bit secondary to the big task of trying to follow Jesus? Let's just get on with that. 
Now, here at Kirkpatrick, uh, we're fortunate to be relatively stable uh, with our church leadership, and we're thankful to God for that. But even so, it's going to be important to us, isn't it, to work out when we can, when we have the opportunity, uh, what good leadership looks like in Christ's church. Uh, And just to sharpen that up uh, a little bit for you, um, Christoph's asked me to mention that in January, we're going to have uh, elders' elections here at the church. So if you're somebody who is uh, committed to the church family here and a voting member, uh, you're going to receive a piece of paper with a list of every other voting member of the church on it. And you're going to be asked to go home and sort of circle which people you think should be uh, leaders in this congregation. And so the question is very much going to be put to you uh, in January. What sort of person do you think makes a good leader in the Church of Christ? Well, I hope you could see at a glance, as Mark read, that this passage uh, is designed to answer exactly that question. We're in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, so do open your Bibles uh, if you've closed them. Uh, We're going to see why our church leadership uh, process matters. Well, it's not just politics, but vital to Christ's church. And before we dive in, I just want to say a quick word on the two types of leaders uh, that Paul mentions in the passage. So you can see in verse 2, you've got the overseers who are mentioned. Uh, And then in verse 8, you get these guys called deacons. uh, And they seem to also be female deacons uh, in verse 11 mentioned. Um, Now, our church has historically sought to uh, express these roles uh, in terms of the session, the body of elders, and the congregational committee, who are sort of more like the deacon kind of roles. Uh, And that's really good and really healthy, but we need to be careful as we approach this passage that we could be in danger of reading in what we think we know about those roles into the text of 1 Timothy, uh, and not really seeing what Paul thinks uh, these jobs of overseers and deacons are about. So what I want us to do is to try and almost discard those ideas for a bit and just think in terms of overseers and deacons. Uh, What are their jobs? What do they need to do? Uh, And actually, more importantly, in this passage for this week, uh, what are their qualifications? What do they need to be like? Um, To help with that, I'm going to mainly use a more generic term this evening. I'm going to talk about church leaders. Uh, We're going to do a fair amount of work in uh, smaller groups this evening. Uh, and the, my aim is really to lead us through a process of hopefully having a rough understanding of what this passage is about uh, at the beginning, uh, to a bit of a deeper and clearer understanding of the passage uh, that we'll then be able to apply more relevantly and more concretely into our church life uh, today. So we're going to do that sort of process step by step, uh, do a bit of working groups, and then feed back on that along the way. Uh, so to start with, I've got a couple of questions to get us into the passage. Um, Firstly, what does Paul emphasize? Can we, um, yeah, that's one. Uh, what does Paul emphasize in this passage? What things are repeated several times? Uh, what things kind of overlap between overseers and deacons that Paul seems to think is really important? Um, you might find it helpful to think about what you've expected him to write uh, and what he actually does write in t- to work that out. Um, and are there any puzzles in the passage? Anything that takes you aback that you think, I don't really understand that? Uh, or I don't really know why he's written it in that way. What's, what's all that about? Uh, so just a couple of questions there to really just get us uh, into the passage and chewing on it and working out what we make of it. Uh, so if we could turn in our groups now to do that, it might be helpful if, um, if you're younger to kind of find uh, some people who are older and come and sit with them, perhaps in front of them, uh, so that you can do the harder bit of turning around in the pews uh, and chatting to them. Groups of about uh, five or so would be good for this. Okay, we'll break in there and we'll um, hear from the groups uh, what's been happening. Philip is going to come around 
uh, with the microphone. Um, what we might do is actually just, Philip, we'll, what, to save your legs, we'll, we'll maybe just start with the back group and then we'll kind of proceed in a kind of uh, clockwise sort of thing around. The, so someone from the, anyone from the back group, I know that puts you a little bit on the spot, but hopefully someone's brave enough there to maybe just shout out some of the kind of emphases that you saw that jumped out at you from the passage. Um, we talked a bit about how, well, it is a really long list of qualities. Yeah. Like, um, there's a lot in that. Um, integrity was yeah. something that came out. Um, and they're qualities that, um, that people need to see in you. They're not ones, um, like we talked a bit about, um, that if, like it's, it's very well someone desiring that noble task, but that needs to be tested by how, uh -huh. um, by the qualities they have. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's good. So a focus yeah. on kind of observable yeah. godliness, characteristics you can see. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, great. Um, let's take, get something from the next group along. Um, so we were quite surprised that there wasn't more uh, kind of emphasis on their theological basis for the overseers. Yeah. It was more for the deacons. Um, verse 9 talks about um, how they have to keep hold of the deep truths of faith with a clear conscience. Um, but the rest were more all about characteristics. Yeah, yeah. so lots and lots about character, not so much about what we said down here, not so much on them being doctrinal wizards. Uh, yeah, something from uh, this group down here. Uh, there was a lot, there was a fair bit of emphasis on an orderly family life. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah. So lots of, again, and that kind of fits in a bit with um, what Kira was saying. Practical stuff. What's their family life like? Yeah. Anything from you guys? Maybe a surprise or something that you were puzzled about, or an emphasis that jumped out. About the dangers of uh, new converts being moved into positions of authority. It was bad for them, and it was bad for the church. Yeah, thank you, Stanley. So that's verse uh, 6, isn't it? Mustn't be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Something that really jumped out at me in my preparation was the, the devil is kind of prowling around in the corners of this passage. He's there in verse 6. He's also there in verse 7. We're talking about church leaders, and the devil's popping up. It just seems um, a little bit odd, so... We could maybe have a think about that. Um, good, something from the next group? I'm not sure if we've got in that. We talked a lot about the family thing, mm -hmm. about them being married, as mentioned a number of times. And um, we spent a while talking about um, why it wouldn't be good for elders to be new converts, but really I don't think, have we anything to add here? That's absolutely fine. All right, thank you very much, Rosie. Uh, anything from the back group, anything you guys want to add? No? Okay, great. All right. Well, that's a brilliant start, I think. So we've got a few things there that we've actually begun to get a bit of a gist of the passage. Um, we've, got, we've seen pretty clearly that there's this focus on integrity. We talked about respect in our group, uh, these publicly observable qualities. Um, but we've got a few surprises uh, there as well. Why is character emphasized so much and less on the kind of doctrine? It's there, but it's not huge. Um, why so much on the family life? Uh, uh, what's, what's going on with the devil, uh, who, who's there quite a lot. Let me give you a couple more things that surprised me a bit. I often find when I'm looking at the Bible that if I th focus on the things I find hard to understand, that really helps me to understand the whole passage in a, in a better way. 
So a few things I found a bit tricky as I was looking at this is actually verse 1. Did you see how Paul starts off? He says, here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. These trustworthy sayings are common features in, Paul, in this letter. And we actually had one in chapter 1. Just flick over the page and you can see another trustworthy saying in verse 15 of chapter 1. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Um, there's another trustworthy saying as well in chapter 4, uh, and it, it goes like this. Uh, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now, I think as you look at those two trustworthy sayings, you think, okay, that makes sense that these are big deals. Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. Godliness being of value for this life and the next. Those things make sense to us as being big headline statements. But Paul seems to think that church leaders uh, and the office of a church leader being a noble task, that also is a kind of a big headline-grabbing, trustworthy statement. That, I don't know about you, but to me that just seems a little bit odd. Why is that? Why is it such a big deal? We talked about um, a lot about character. One thing that often I've struggled with when I've looked at this passage is in verse 2. Uh, a summary for this sort of set of characteristics seems to be that the overseer must be above reproach. What does that mean? Is that saying that the overseer needs to be perfect, that they can never have anyone who could call them out on anything? Uh, what's the standard here for, the, for, for this character? So at one hand, you've got that, but then also at the same time, you've got some odd things coming up uh, in, those, in these characteristics. They mustn't be violent. Uh, they mustn't be lovers of money. Uh, they mustn't be quarrelsome or, 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 um, or likers of much drink. And you look at those things, and you kind of think, well, that's really not rocket science. Some of these things seem quite basic, don't they? They actually seem like something that if you had a kind of a, a nice, clean living person, uh, maybe a, a, like a well-known politician like Barack Obama, and he was a member of our congregation here. It sounds like he pretty much just ticked the boxes straight away. We wouldn't have to talk about things like servant leadership, uh, the kind of leadership that Jesus modeled to the church. It doesn't seem to be particularly distinctively Christian, does it? Look at that list. They've got to be faithful to their wives. They've got to be temperate. They've got to be self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Um, those things all seem like good values, but they seem like the kind of values that anyone might sign up to. So what's going on there? Well, at this point, we might just shrug our shoulders at some of these things and think, well, okay, that's Paul being a bit weird. We've got the gist. Let's, let's move on. But I think it's at just this point that the value of studying a passage like this in the context of a whole letter really starts to pay off. Um, and that's going to help us to deepen our understanding of why some of these things are, are written like this. So let's remind ourselves of why 1 Timothy was written. Uh, and that comes in uh, verse uh, 15. Uh, Paul says this. He says, I'm writing you these instructions um, so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. We've talked about that verse a fair bit, haven't we, over the past few weeks, if you've been with us. We've said that the church is God's household. It's like his family business. And that means it has the job of promoting the saving truth about Jesus Christ to the world. It's a pillar to enable the truth to be seen 
uh, by all the world so that people will come to Christ. That's a big job, isn't it? And Paul's written this letter to enable people to work out how to live in the church in light of that role. So just with that as a refresher, I wonder if we can get back into our groups and maybe just look at some of those puzzles that we talked about there, uh, some of the ones that you found and some of the ones I raised, and just see if any of those make a little bit more sense in light of that big purpose for the letter that we've been looking at. So a few minutes to have a go at that. Okay, let's, um, let's hear what we've come up with. Uh, Philip's got the mic still. Uh, Philip, do you want to start with that, with that corner and see uh, whether with an empty slate any of you, your guys have got anything to share? You and I just um, we, we made a very strong connection between this role that the church is to have as a pillar and the foundation of the truth and the, the importance of the, the reputation and the respectableness mm-hmm. of a leader. Um, if, if the church really is to be a pillar and a foundation of the truth, holding high the gospel, holding high the glory of God, then it'll, it'll take godly people uh, with a good reputation to do that, both leaders and church members. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. Did, did other people kind of see that link in the other groups? No? Yes? No? There's something there, isn't there? The, the church has got this public role to be promoting the gospel in the eyes of the world. And so if the church, and particularly the church leaders, aren't doing that, it's not really going to work that well, is it? The pillar's going to come crashing down. Yeah. Um, the next group, Rosie's group, have you got anything to... Uh, it doesn't have to be Rosie, it could be anyone. Um, do you have anything to add to that or any other points on whether this big purpose helped us to understand? Same stuff, Yeah. Okay, very, very good. Uh, this group, anything to add? Chapter, I don't know. I'm chapter four, uh, verse three. He's attacking those who forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. Um, he's making. I think a much more important, deeper theological point than appears just on the surface here. And, and this is the idea that was a, a real danger in the early church where people said matter is evil. And he's saying, no, what God created is not evil. Mm-hmm. So eat what food you like and marry. These are God's perfect and wonderful creation mm-hmm. and don't let people twist it into uh, an erroneous theology that matter is evil. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Stanley, very much. Anyone, does it, we'll just go to putting up hands now. Anyone got anything else they want to add? Anyone else found this helpful in terms of working out any of those puzzles that we raised earlier? No? Okay, that's fine. Well, I'll talk you through some of the things that I found helpful about that. Um, See if you agree. You may not. Um, The trustworthy saying, um, I think it makes sense for church leaders to be given this big, you know, trustworthy saying thing in light of that verse. Because that verse says that God has committed that saving truth about Jesus to his church. And so the church is actually a kind of a salvation-y thing now. 
people aren't going to get saved unless they hear about the truth and the church does its job of promoting the truth. And so that means that church leaders who have the job of leading the church, well, that is a really important task, isn't it? Um, I was thinking as I was walking along to church this evening, there are, I'm walking past houses where people do not know the truth. And our job uh, as a church family here is to try and share that truth with them. And that is a huge task, isn't it? That's being a pillar and foundation of the truth. And I thought, I've got the job of teaching God's word to you guys this evening. And that is a really noble task, isn't it? Because if I don't do my job very well, you guys will go away confused and you won't be equipped to share the gospel with the world. Can you see how if that, that kind of logic works? And it means that church leadership is actually a massive deal. I think that makes sense of why the devil is here. He knows that church leadership is a massive deal. And have a look at verse 7. He says that he wants church leaders to fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. That's what the devil is trying to do. He's got to focus on trying to stop church leaders in order to stop the church. I think we can draw a little implication from that already, which is that as we're talking about church leadership, we're actually talking about something much bigger than how we organize the church. We're talking about that battle that's been going on since the beginning between God and the devil. God wants to save the world. He wants to bring the world back uh, to know him and all the good that is found in him. And the devil hates that. He's the enemy of God and everything good. And so he is at war with God, trying to prevent uh, that saving truth from reaching people. Now, of course, we know that that is not an equal battle, that God is in control of that. But in our perspective here and now, the devil is very powerful. And this verse tells us that he is particularly attacking church leaders because he knows that church leadership is a noble task. Uh, it's a little bit, the devil's strategy is a little bit like the strategy the US has uh, with attacking uh, Al-Qaeda terrorists and that kind of thing. They go for the head of the organizations, don't they? They try and decapitate them in order to make the whole uh, organization dysfunctional. Um, I was reading uh, about an attack that um, some U.S. Navy SEALs made uh, in the middle of the night on a beach in Somalia. They went and they surrounded a house because they knew that a terrorist leader was in that house and they wanted to capture him and take him away and use him for their purposes. And that really is just what the devil is trying to do with church leaders. He's trying to capture them. He's trying to get them to fall into his trap because he knows that church leadership is a noble task because it's the job of leading God's household, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. I wonder if we think about church leadership like that. Um, another thing that I think looking at this helps us with is this whole thing about character, which Christoph talked about. The whole idea of being above reproach, well, that kind of makes sense if church leaders are kind of uh, in charge of leading a church that needs to show the gospel truth to the world, where it makes sense that they need to be uh, modeling that gospel and showing that gospel to be uh, the life-changing and genuine and good gospel that it is. I think verse 7 um, helps us a bit to work out what above reproach exactly means, though, because we were getting confused. We are thinking, but people do fail, don't they? And we're not all 100% right all of the time. But what's the devil's aim? Have a look. He wants people to fall into disgrace. Um, 
And so the antidote to that is to make sure that we have church leaders who have a good reputation with outsiders. Does that make sense? So the church leader needs to be someone with a good reputation. And that's really what above reproach means. It means somebody who the outside world isn't going to come along and say, why have you got him in charge? What does that say about your organization? What does that say about your gospel if you've got somebody who's doing that in charge? Um, I was reading this week uh, in a newspaper about uh, a bishop in a church in Germany uh, who basically drives around in a very flash car. And this is a kind of a big denomination church. Uh, and he's been, the title of the, the newspaper article was The Bishop of Bling. Uh, actually, the newspaper was The Economist, who you'd, you'd have thought would be in support of wealth generation and gathering income and that kind of thing. But even they were turned off by this bishop who basically had accumulated vast piles of treasure for himself. Uh, he'd commissioned... Uh, a new uh, palace for, his, for himself to live in uh, at vast expense, millions of pounds, that kind of thing. Turns people off, doesn't it, when you see church leaders acting like that. And Paul's saying to Timothy, well, Paul's saying to the congregation even, support Timothy in disciplining elders who are not living up to these standards, these basic standards of uh, morality that most people in the world would sign up to, that the economists would sign up to, for example. If you've got a church leader who the economist thinks is earning too much money for himself, that is a bad church leader, and you should support uh, Timothy in uh, disciplining him. So here's our second implication from this. Uh, The church needs leaders who are going to represent the church well in the eyes of the world. Uh, We've all seen uh, organizations like political parties or whatever uh, who kind of get dragged through the, uh, the papers when they say something or do something stupid, uh, and they, they undermine our whole view of the organization. Uh, I'm thinking about Plebgate, for example, which, although it apparently didn't happen, it certainly made us all kind of think, if you follow the Conservative Party, you probably don't, um, but it probably confirmed all our prejudices about the Conservative Party. Um, and there's a little question I had as I was preparing this this week, uh, which is, is Paul saying here, can he really be saying that we should choose our leaders by the standards of the world. I think that can't be right. Um, But what Paul is saying is that they should at least measure up. They should at least conform to basic standards of morality that most people subscribe to. You know, they should be uh, self-controlled. They should be respectable. uh, They should be hospitable. I think Paul's saying that because Christians can quite easily, it seems, get dragged off and get excited about the wrong kinds of leadership. They get excited about the flashy leadership or the very spiritual kind of leadership, and they can't see what's right in front of their eyes sometimes. So I think a good test is almost to maybe bring a a non-Christian friend along to church one Sunday and ask them as as they leave, well, what did you think of that? And if they say, well, that was a bit weird, or, or, you know, I don't know why the minister was wearing that or why he was saying that or acting like that, and if you can't find a clear justification for, for that in the Bible, that might actually put you onto something. Maybe you've forgotten like, just that it's about being normal uh, and living up to basic standards of morality rather than putting on a show. Well, hopefully that gives us a little bit more understanding of what we're, we're talking about here. We're not talking about nice leaders. We're not talking about leaders, by the way, who are just going to make us feel good. We need to remember that this is about sharing the gospel with the world. And we're not talking 
about super holy leaders, leaders who are going to be kind of somehow better than every other Christian. You've got A Christians and B Christians, and the leaders, well, they're going to be the B Christians, the really good ones. No, we're talking about decent leaders, down-to-earth leaders who conform to basic levels of morality, but aren't going to let the church down and embarrass us publicly. And we're not talking about leaders with a certain status in the church. Often, uh, we were talking in our group about how church leaders or elders often seem to be the important people in the church. Uh, Maybe the ones who have got professional status or something like that. But Paul doesn't say any of that here. He says that they just need to be above reproach. People who are not going to let the church down. So let's bring um, some of that together. Paul's saying that we need to support leaders who are going to have solid reputations. Uh, they need to be able to teach, and they need to be Christians as well. But big, big headline is support leaders with solid reputations so that the church won't be disgraced. In other words, we could say that church leaders with solid reputations are mission critical. They're critical to our mission of being a church that is a pillar and foundation of the truth. Because if we don't have them, we're going to fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. We need to uh, draw to a close and to move on. I just want to share just a couple of thoughts um, as we close about how some of this fits in with our situation here um, and our elders and our election process. Um, We said earlier that in our church, the office of the elder is seeking to reflect uh, the, the overseer that Paul talks about here. Um, And I did a bit of digging um, and had a look at our church code, and I think it actually reflects really well um, Paul's stress on the down-to-earth, respectable godliness that's required for elders. Um, So let's just finish by me sharing that with you. Uh, our Our church code says this, The elder should be circumspect and exemplary in his conduct, both in the church and the world, of acknowledged piety, that's just a different way of translating godliness, endeavouring to maintain the worship of God in his family and held in esteem by the people. I think that's a really helpful statement. There's a concern there, isn't there, for elders who are known to have a good reputation in the church and in the world and who are already seeking to lead their families if they have them in a godly way. Well, let's uh, close there. And I thought we should now, uh, in applying that, Uh, seek to pray for our leaders. Um, We may not all be leaders here, but we all have the job of supporting uh, church leaders and encouraging them. And one of the best ways we can do that is by praying. So let's uh, pray. Father, we want to bring our church leaders before you this evening. Uh, We've seen in your word tonight the noble task that they have. And we're conscious that the devil would love them to fail. Uh, So, Father, we pray that each of our elders here might continue to hold on to the truths of the faith, uh, that they might lead their families and us as a church in a godly way, and that their characters would be above reproach. We pray, too, for our members uh, of Congregational Committee. We thank you for their desire to serve us. And we pray that each of them would serve well in an honourable way, and no great assurance in their faith as they do that. We want to particularly remember uh, Christoph before you this evening with the particular responsibility he has for leading us. 
Father, thank you for the great blessing you've given us through him as he's labored in preaching and teaching. Please keep him rooted and built up in Christ, strengthened in the faith and overflowing with thankfulness. Please guard his and Claire's marriage. Please protect his family from the devil's trap. And please might each of them grow up to be devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.